welcome to the Nerd Party. Time and Space, a Doctor Who podcast. I'm Jessica Nunn. And I'm her husband and co-host, Philip Gilfus. Well, it's another semi-quarantine edition. Yes, I mean, yeah. you know, we're uh, still working and going out, but on the weekends, it's just the two of us. Which has been gr- gr- great. Happy anniversary, darling. <laughs> Happy anniversary! <laughs> That's right. It appears that we're stuck doing another year Apparently. because, you know pandemic yeah we don't do long-term contracts it's no just, uh, no we have renewal. to re- yeah we have to renew every year and to be honest i sort of put it off mm-hmm. and so my procrastination has yeah, just automatically renewed automatically if you don't, renewed and you, now i'm your stuck agent didn't call it. to renegotiate and so <laughs> no new terms same old same old going into year four yeah. it's gonna be but then we get a degree at the end of it presumably that's <laughs> presumably yeah right. yeah that'll be nice mm-hmm yeah, so excuse any noise, we do have the door open because the cat is outside, but you know, here in quarantine land, when your AC doesn't work, at least here in the American South, uh, we have to keep the door open and keep it cool. Yep, so, keep it keep it cool, man. Yeah, so. But what are we going to be talking about today? Darling? We are going to be talking about the faceless ones, the yes. animated reconstruction. Right, and you know, we're... We're classic Who fans, but, you know, we're not necessarily experts about it. Not at all. So we definitely uh, pulled out the phone on the TARDIS outside and called in the expert. And so we have with us Richard Carrier, a friend of the show. Richard, welcome to Time and Space again. Yay! Thank you very much. It's lovely. I was very honored, uh, very excited for you to... And congratulations as well on your anniversary. I wasn't aware of that. We tried Uh, to ignore it. <laughs> I know there was no special or anything. It's like the network doesn't even care. Just ignore an anniversary. I assumed they were going to bring my ex husband back. It could oh, be the a, two multi husband. Yeah, <laughs> oh, never done that. the okay. two husbands of Jessica Nunn. Yeah, that's right. I was a little disappointed. I yeah. do. I know that each year, so there's some website I looked at where every single year can be marked with a particular object or mm, item like paper and wood and things like that and i did say to my wife when we got married i said each year on our anniversary i'm going to do something related to these things and i didn't do it uh although it was our it was our fifth uh anniversary last uh, august so i i did write her a little sonnet Aww, so um, hopefully yeah. made up somewhat for which was obviously made of paper, and it had a wooden frame, so it kind of had the two things. <laughs> <laughs> nice work, nice work. <laughs> now, um, not to go off on a tangent, but uh, Richard, on your vlog, you uh, uh, recently posted a, a tour of your house, showing all your Doctor Who and other merchandise yeah. or you know figures, and, memorabilia, and memorabilia that's sort of oh, junk. <laughs> <laughs> but a, a non-sci-fi related thing, you talked about the a picture you have in your house from Germany of where you uh, proposed to your wife, and I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Maybe think we uh, uh, or I proposed to Jessica here in New York City, um, so it was just nice that we both sort of had the vacation proposal plan. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that was the thing. That was actually. Uh, 
reasonably early on in our relationship, I sort of knew that that, that was a thing. And, and I'd planned, we'd said about, because my wife um, lived in Germany for a while, and she speaks fluent German. Um, so uh, we, she, uh, sort of our first, first Christmas together, she um, sort of secretly got, got us tickets to go to Berlin uh, at Easter time. And I thought, right, I'm going to have to bring my plans forward a little bit. So, uh, yeah, I had to go over there. I had to keep it. She, she didn't have any idea that I, I had it planned kind of thing. It was a, I wanted it to be, you know, the t- traditional kind of uh, surprise, that kind of thing. Uh, and I went out and got the ring and all that. And then I was concerned taking I didn't want to put it in my suitcase because I thought, well, you know, they might go through it and it will come out and all that. Mm. Or, and then I thought, well, I'll put it in my shoe. <laughs> so I took it out of the box and put the ring in my, in my shoe and then I thought what I was going, we were, I was getting very nervous uh, as we went through customs because I thought, oh, no, they're going to find this thing. Fortunately, it, it didn't set anything <laughs> off and I managed to keep it to the end of the week. Yeah. And originally, my plan was to propose to her at the top of the Reichstag, which has sort of like a, a glass dome um, that looks over the city. I thought that would be quite romantic. Mm. Um, but although it's free to go there, you, you, because it is actually their parliament building and you are looking down into their parliament, you, you need to have all these, uh, you have to have your passport and permission and everything to go there. So I didn't manage to do that in the end. So it was sort of on a spur of a moment kind of thing that I thought I'll use the Brandenburg Gate, which actually was better because it was less public mm. in a way in the evening. Um, but yeah, we just thought, well, we should have a picture of the Brandenburg Gate to sort of commemorate this, but couldn't couldn't get a couldn't find a picture that we we liked of it that kind of captured the way we wanted it so then we went back and i took a photograph of it and uh, yeah i was really pleased with with either how that came out actually i've done photography and things in the past but that was the first sort of one that i really sort of put up on the wall kind of thing i was pleased with Aww. so yeah yeah although i was and and i thought it was quite it, although i picked the brandenburg gate sort of because it was there i thought it's quite good because it is nowadays at least is seen as a kind of a symbol of of unity and and coming together because that was like when they brought down the Berlin Wall the two sort of chancellors of the different parts of Berlin met through the center gate and kind of unified the country again so that was a that was a nice little coincidence really oh, it's beautiful yeah, I, I like it Although then I got home and turned on the television and there was a documentary about Nazi Germany and the first thing I saw was a load of Nazis marching through the <laughs> right. <Berlin. laughs> That certainly was not the <laughs> uh, Well, we've had a tour of your house, so we know there's no weird memorabilia in there. Nothing. <laughs> no. Uh, oh, no, I, I have that in there. <laughs> oh, no. Well, no. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's get into it. Uh, this is obviously the Faceless Ones. This is another, um, I, I never know the right term to use, but animated reconstruction of the lost episodes of yeah. early Doctor Who. Um, certainly the heaviest casualties are in the Troughton era, but obviously a few in the Hartnell mm. as well. I guess, Richard, when you heard, and I, probably some time ago, but when you heard they were doing the Faceless Ones, <laughs> were you like, oh, great, you know, great recovered Doctor Who, or, oh, that story? Or, or what was your sort of thought when you heard about it? Uh, I was quite pleased. I, I've always liked the Faceless Ones, actually. It's one of those ones which... Uh, there are two episodes extant, mm. so and I'd had the uh, um, before they started doing reconstructions. They did do a DVD set with all like what was left of missing stories. So I had seen the two existing episodes before, and then obviously when I when I rewatched all of Doctor Who, I, I listened to the soundtrack and looked at the telly snap. So I had some sense of the story, uh, but there was that that mystery to it. Uh, still that I, I was interested to see how they were going to do it so yeah I, I was I was probably more enthusiastic about seeing the faceless ones and the macro terror 
to mm. be honest. Mm. Um, I, I must admit, the one that I really want them to do, which I, I've got a feeling they will at some point, is The Evil of the Daleks, which is yes. actually the, the next story after the Faceless mm. Ones. Um, I know that they do have some difficulties. Um, we'll probably never see some of the big historical ones done because one of the problems with those is um, also because a lot of the audience will want to see Daleks or Cybermen or mm. whatever. But um, And I suppose, you know, Marco Polo is not as sexy, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the issues with that was because when they did the historicals, they could just raid the BBC costume department. Um, that you know that all the costumes had been made for different productions and was just in the big wardrobe and so people had like four or five different changes of costume um, and as a result to animate those I think would be prohibitively expensive because you know unless they kept them in the same costume the whole time but I think they they generally try and keep true to how it visually looked Mm. so I doubt we'll see any of those but as far as I remember the evil of the Daleks whilst it is quite a long story um, has relatively few characters so i don't think it would be that difficult for them to do and i think that's probably what they'll build up to although i think the next one they're doing is fury yes. from the deep but uh yeah i hope that that they'll get around to evil that's the one i would really like to to see because i love both the dalek stories from trout's time um but yeah no i was quite i was quite interested in how they were going to do the faceless ones and i i, I really enjoyed um how they how they visualized it now the question i always have to ask is how did you watch because um you know i got the steel book and i think and i know you do too because i saw it on your video um but anyway so uh to me i I guess there's three ways i thought that there was only two i just struggled with what the third way was i guess maybe it's the telesnaps version but um you could either watch the color animation and i guess do they do all the episodes even the ones that already exist and i guess you do the black and white and then you can do the yeah. color and or black and white with the existing. And so I, I always, I don't know, Jessica, what your preference is. I always choose black and white because it's Troughton. I mean, you know, seeing, seeing some sort of, you know. Seeing him in color is a little bit disconcerting. Outside of a multi-doctor yeah. story. Because <laughs> yeah. we just watched The Three Doctors not too recently. So, yeah. So I, I, we watched black and white animation with the existing. So I, did you just watch all three, Richard, or did you have a preference? Um, well, when I got Power of the Daleks originally, I did watch that in, in black and white to kind of get the kind of authentic, close to the authentic thing. I must admit this time, though, I was kind of intrigued by watching it in colour. So I did watch the, the colour reconstructed version in, in, in widescreen. And um, I think it worked. It wasn't too jarring, I don't think, because the images generally, although they are, uh, you know, if you if you if you cross-reference some of the shots with the with the tele snaps, you can see how they've reconstructed it a lot a lot more true to the visuals than the Macro Terra was. They kind of went a bit more imaginative with some of the visualizations of that. This one was a lot truer to the original shots um, in in the story. Uh, but yeah, I was I, I yeah I just thought I'll watch this one in color for some reason. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and I quite liked it. I think because it it's not a very broad, colourful story as such, so it it wasn't too jarring in any way to to see these sort of characters. Um, I did glance down at the telly snaps from time to time to sort of see how that would have looked and compare how they'd sort of created it. And I think generally from a from a still image point of view, it's quite accurate. Obviously, there are. I think they've done they've come on leaps and bounds since the earlier ones that were being done but there's still certain limitations when you have a lot of action and physical movement especially 
in the later episode. I think it might be the last episode, actually, where they have the sort of struggle in the car park uh, where the chameleon alien guy attacks um, uh, Sam Briggs. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of difficult, you know, to, to visualise a, a tussle <laughs> between 2D animated characters as such. Um but uh, I, you know, I think it's a great job that they've done, really, and 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 to keep true, you know, the attention to detail, I think, is really, really impressive. Like the little details, and I don't know if you noticed, um, but there were a lot of little Easter eggs they crept in as well. Um, some more more apparent than others. For example, in the in the, did you say you watched the the real episodes with yes. the animated mm-hmm. in between? Oh, okay, so you probably wouldn't see that in the first episode. When the police motorbike uh, motorbike has come out of the police station, there's like a wanted poster on the wall. I did wall, see it in and it's, things um, Roger Delgado. Mm-hmm. Uh, is oh, it? Yeah, oh, right. Oh, maybe yeah, it came back right. again. Uh, they're Roger Delgado and Sasha Dewan. So right up to date as a Doctor Who reference, uh, masters on the on the pin board, and uh, yeah, little things like Magpie Electricals. Um, uh, of the shop front in the, in the airport, um, little things like that. There's also a, a little bit uh, because, although it's kind of debatable, uh, at least the, the the very ending of the story happens on the same day as Ben and Polly left, which was the same day that the War Machines with William Hartnell, uh, the story happens. So there's a point where someone puts something down. You see the front of the newspaper, and it says about the War Machines being defeated <laughs> and things like that. So there's nice little. You know that the people who are doing it are doing it with great care and affection, mm. and it's not. Um, you know, it, it's clearly that they are already doing far more work than they're probably being paid for. <laughs> you know, just to get it as good as possible. And I think that's a real. You know, that's worthy of, of applause. Really, mm. you know. Uh, I don't think it's ever a, a complete substitute for for the original. You know, you can't really compare, um, but you know, it's it's a great thing to have and to have you know to have these stories, you know, which you know, television production back then was treated like a stage play, not just in in the, in the way it was expected to be enjoyed, but in the sense of how ephemeral and impermanent it was. Uh, I know we we look back and see as you know it's a great tragedy that all these stories were destroyed and deleted, but you know that was that was kind of de rigueur for a very long mm. time and and you know if if people weren't once color television came in, people even in other countries didn't really want old black and white t v serials anymore don't want those repeated either, so they just thought all well, these are just taking up space and so got rid of them and and uh and so it's pretty amazing to think that something that was kind of uh knocked out uh, you know over 50 years ago now can be resurrected in this steelbook blu-ray for people to treasure that you know people have gone to great effort to clean up the sound and to 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 do all these little details and animations i think it's it's really really good i wish it had been (laughs) earlier uh you know back back when i was growing up you know i'm quite jealous sometimes of of people either discovering it new for the first time or or uh, or kids for example you know all these things that that we didn't have so much when I was growing up. Awesome. Didn't even have the telly snaps like that actually <laughs> mm. a lot of the time. Uh-huh. So, well, to talk yeah. a little style before substance of the story, uh, Jessica, what did you think of sort of because we got to see in some of the extras, you know, literally talking about how they animated. What do you think about how they talked about how they animated versus maybe some of how it actually was? You know, they had to sort of basically zoom in, you know, for the animation versus getting legs and characters and all that stuff find the animation process Mm -hmm. 
fascinating. Mm -hmm. I would never have the patience for that. But looking at people, you know, taking video of themselves catching a ball and then looking (laughs) at the the variety of mouth mouth expressions that mm-hmm. that Patrick Troughton has it's just uh, you know as you say Richard it's such a labor of love in a lot of ways um, that sort of attention to detail and that that I find mm. really interesting and do you enjoy the animation versus telesnaps or just not doing it um yeah I mean I, I like the telesnaps but it tends to feel then disjointed a little bit to me for you know obvious reasons and the part where it goes you may now turn the tape over (laughs) yeah yeah Mm. makes the little fairy noise i think one of the problems with with looking at the with sort of just looking at the telesnaps with the the thing i mean the reason why telesnaps exist was because tv was so ephemeral then directors would mm, would usually yeah. commission someone to take these telesnaps of their work to put as part of their portfolios that was why they really existed um just so that they could then sh- say look these are the shots i've done this is the cinematography i'm capable of kind of thing and as a result because they were kind of like they weren't necessarily particular frames chosen it would just be like one shot every few seconds or, or so a bit like cctv or something there are some parts where there, there's no visual reference. I think one of the things that they admirably dealt with quite a lot is there's very little evidence of how the chameleon aliens in their natural state, so to speak, actually looked like. And so they, they did a little bit of sort of artistic license with, with what they looked like in that. But I uh, and, and again, the, oh, yeah. the bit where, where um, anyone gets zapped, you know, when they take the, the control pad off someone's arm, and then they sort of melt. <laughs> I'm, it's not clear how that was visualized in the original. I doubt there was a sort of green puddle. Um, I, I imagine what they actually did was just disappear, like a kind of a visual, like the TARDIS visual effect. Mm. Um, I mean, when they took the Amazon Prime controller off their arm? Uh, yes. <laughs> One of the benefits of having the animation is it does sometimes fill in those gaps with a kind of an imaginative, sort of an informed educated guess as to how that would have been visualized um but one of the things i know this sounds incredibly sad one of the things that i really appreciate having done a lot of um sort of 3d cg modeling over the last year or so for different things different projects i've got coming up is i really appreciate the detail that they did a lot of the time where they they merge sort of 2d and 3d animation um and and modeling with the backgrounds like the sets Mm. that the 2d characters are on and i i really like the the detail and the, the accuracy that they got in those i think one of the trickiest things with any kind of animation that is trying to capture how television was filmed back then as a kind of you know it was a multi-camera setup it wasn't like a film like modern doctor who was shot so you didn't tend to have that many close-ups and things like that although saying that this this story obviously features quite a lot probably the most i think at that stage um location filming that the the show had enjoyed up to then because they got permission to to film at gatwick and i think that would have been a thing which taken in the modern context doesn't necessarily make much of an impression on us but i think one of the things that's important to remember is that at the time very few people had actually ever re- even been in an airport um, because it was a very expensive way of traveling you know and so they were strange alien environments uh, and i think arguably the airport is as much a, a kind of a 
not necessarily an antagonist in the story, but kind of a feature, a character in the story itself. There's obviously a lot of time spelt on spent on the concourses and obviously on the on the air on the actual airstrip itself and in hangars and things like that. So I think that would have been um interesting uh enough to hold the attention for, for an audience of the time, whereas a modern audience might find a bit it drags a little bit. As it goes on, as a modern audience, I did enjoy looking at that airplane, going, "Man, they they are so comfortable in that thing." That is, <laughs> that is quite they have a lot of leg room. <laughs> and also, I hasten I hasten to add, as I'm sure you're aware, that the uh, the security at, at Gatwick Airport is is much more <laughs> much improved since 1966. Yes, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, that was one of the things I was like, they came out the past anyway. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so getting into the substance, not that I guess they necessarily chose the story for this reason, but a notable thing about this serial uh, is that it is a companion exit serial. Yeah. So this is sort of the first series of Troughton. Um, Darling, I know you probably haven't seen much, I know, but what do you think of sort of Ben and Polly, what little there was of them? Yeah, Ben and Polly are characters that I, like, I feel like Jamie I'm relatively comfortable with as a companion. Mm -hmm. Ben and Polly, I just don't know at all Mm -hmm. and so you know when you pointed out sort of midway through where the heck are ben and polly i'm like man i hadn't (laughs) noticed really um (laughs) yes this isn't a great introductory story for them because they're hardly yeah yeah it was because i was because i didn't know that they were leaving Uh, you know we're sort of midway through Mm. watching the serial because we did like two episodes a day or something and so i was just looking up a little bit just to be like i want some background without spoiling anything so i sort of look at the story notes i'm like oh they're leaving i'm like and then they just leave at episode two, and and I didn't because mm. I didn't know how it was going to end. I'm like, are they going to come back? Is this going to be one of those sort of like written dialogue things? Like, what, mm. Ben and Polly weren't they hypnotized? What happened? Like, eh, I don't know. They're fine now, and they left. And sort of that uh, dodo sort of line of dialogue exit. Yeah. Of like, <laughs> well, that was almost a it is a is a complete sort of uh, echo of that really, and is a good example of how the producer at the time uh, didn't. I mean, clearly, with Dodo, it was a very unceremonious exit where, as you say, she was hypnotised, and then later on they go, oh, she she sort of shipped off to convalesce, and then I think it might even be Polly or someone who comes and tells the Doctor, oh, uh, Dodo says thanks, and she's off, and they say, oh, okay, and we don't even get a farewell. They they didn't really seem to appreciate the companions as anything other than the function of needing to be saved by the Doctor or to ask the questions of the audience. So they are very sort of peremptorily just dismissed from the story and I believe and there's a little bit of uh, debate about the, the specifics of what has happening there I think that they felt that the TARDIS again was getting too crowded now they had Jamie and Jamie I think was kind of an afterthought he wasn't originally intended to be a companion um, and so they sort of wrote him into the TARDIS which is why his first two or three stories like the moon base and things like that he's unconscious or he's sort of sidelined <laughs> Um, because they hadn't originally written them with a third companion in mind. Um, with this story, um, there's actually two things going on. I don't know if you picked up on it or not, but there's actually another companion introduced mm. yes. who then is not actually a companion. Um, but you can see clearly in the writing and in and in the, the filming of the story that she was intended to be a companion, Sam Briggs. Um, and then she is just she well the actress Pauline Collins decided that she didn't want to be in it um, so they had to hastily write her out at the end of the story and then rewrite the next story to make Victoria the new companion I kind of 
wish that I, I tend to be excoriated for expressing this opinion but I find Victoria quite pathetic and I don't really like her very much and I actually would have preferred um, Pauline Collins as Sam Briggs although she is doing a rather bad impression of Scylla Black from that era <laughs> but, um, I would have liked her but bit, it certainly uh, didn't hurt her career because she's gone on and she's got an OBE and in fact she did I don't know if you know but she's, she actually came back to Doctor Who to play Queen Victoria in Tooth and Claw with David Tennant. Yes, so that's the same, yeah. The same actress, yeah. Um, but yeah, the thing was is that I believe um, Annika Wills, who played Polly, her contract, they would, they did want to keep her for longer, but for some reason they wanted to get rid of Ben. Um, yeah. I would have thought uh, there was nothing... I mean, there's been rumours that there was arguments or whatever, and I, I don't think any of that is true, but... Uh, it was kind of umming and ahhing about whether to keep him or to keep Jamie. And I think because they got quite a lot of mail appreciating Fraser Hines and his and his legs, <laughs> um, that they decided to stick with, with Fraser rather than, than Michael Craze. But uh, yeah, so, so Ben was going to leave and then Annika Wills thought, I should leave too. Because very much like David Tennant later said, if I carry on, I'm going to be doing this for years and I don't, you know, I still want to have a career and not be typecast as, as Polly. So she decided to leave quite sensibly, I think, really, for the for the story at least. Ben and Polly leave mm. at the same time. But the way they did it was they had two weeks or so of location filming booked. And so they shot all the stuff for episode one and two with the two actors. And they also shot their farewell scene, which was also on location, to then be inserted in episode episode six. So that's why they disappear for the mainly uh, sort of studio band stuff that you see in between those two. Right. But it is, at least they get a farewell yeah. scene, as as small as it is, um, as compared to, to Dodo. Um, but yeah, I, t- I do think it's a little bit of a little bit of a crime that they were... Because I, I quite like Ben and Polly, and, and I think it is difficult to get a handle on them, because pretty much all of their stories have don't exist anymore. Mm. Um but uh, the, yeah, I think that they work better with Troughton than they do with William Hartnell. I think that was partly because the actors had a hard time with Hartnell as well, because um, he was literally at the end of his his tenure. It was last two or three stories. But uh, yeah, I think I think they're good companions. I quite like him. Uh, ben is a little bit Dick Van Dyke from Mary Poppins sometimes, yeah. some sort of Cockney stereotype. But uh, yeah, it's. Um, Although a slightly more convincing accent than Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I think that Dick Van Dyke sounds exactly like British people. <laughs> yeah, because that's, that's always Jessica's thoughts whenever a companion goodbye. Like, what's, what's, what's the story? What's the what's, story? what's the goss? What's the goss? Although, can you imagine <laughs> if they had not decided to make Jamie a full-time companion, mm. we would not mm. have Outlander. <laughs> well that's true that is true yeah can you imagine um, that world we're, i'm trying <laughs> i think the Troughton era would have been very very different had jamie not been in it because they they are the second doctor era is him and jamie from uh, the power of the daleks is the only story that jamie's not in um with with Troughton. so he's very much it is very much a double act and they the two actors got on so well mm. that um, I think it would have been very different, perhaps similar to how John Pertwee felt after um, uh, Roger Delgado had died and after um, Katie Manning, who played Joe, had moved on. Um, I think Troughton would have felt sort of lost a little bit, perhaps, without without 
Fraser Hines as well. Mm. And of course, whenever he, it's weird when he's in the Five Doctors with the Brigadier, um, you know, to see the, the Second Doctor out of that dynamic in a way, mm. uh, for most of it anyway. So yeah, they do sort of go hand in hand together. They were great friends, and um, and uh, I believe um, I think Colin Baker actually shared a flat with Je- with Fraser Hines as well at some point as well. So they, yeah, it's all very uh, comes together. They're stalwart members. Now, now I'm just thinking about it because I, I watch a lot of uh, YouTube videos, especially you know whether it's reality shows or or even just pop culture stuff. So it's often like you know the top worst or whatever. But now I'm thinking like the top worst companion mm-hmm. exits. Ah. I'm thinking like um, I'm going to forget names here, uh, Richard. But like yeah. uh, the early one. Were the first one that died, like that lasted for two two episodes. Cassandra, yeah, and just like yeah, just randomly yeah, dies. Yeah. She just gets know? launches herself about an airlock by accident. And then, <laughs> and then even um, and I, I can't believe um, this is a sin. I can't remember her name. Seventh Doctor's, uh, well, six Doctors and Seventh Doctor's companion. Oh, Mel, Mel sorry, Langford, yeah, um, yeah. She has a like, she does have a farewell scene. It's where, random. <laughs> uh, yeah, so she just suddenly just dis- yeah. I mean, you can see when producers or writers decided that they'd made a wrong decision with the companion or they wanted to move them on i think mel was very much a andrew cartmel that the script editor came in and just said we need to get rid of mel yeah. um so yeah and it's similar with uh w- with uh, liz shaw oh, yes. um, mm-hmm. with john pertley in her first season they yeah she just they, she doesn't even get a farewell story and then to add insult to injury there's a there's a, a new adventures book called Eternity Weeps, where she dies a horrible, <gasps> horrible death. Oh, no. So, um, but we know it's not true that because actually we've seen the quality, top quality well. uh, Michelle <laughs> <Mark> spinoff. <Gattis>. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But uh, yeah, no, I think that worked out more because that they, they didn't want Liz Shaw was too. Uh, for want of a better word, brainy, and they wanted someone dumber, which is why they <laughs> created the character of Joe Grant, um, which I don't entirely agree with, uh, but that was their, their argument. She was too clever, so people didn't... The idea was the audience didn't have someone to relate to, which I think is a bit absurd. Mm. But uh, that worked out well because the, the actress had also got pregnant and hadn't told them, so she was going to have to leave anyway, apparently. Mm. Um, so I, d- I don't think they could have come up with a, a way like... Uh, Kira in Deep Space oh, yes. Nine. Kind of you mean they couldn't have had someone story, else uh, switch babies? <laughs> you know, come on. Yeah. Anyway, sorry for those Very Space Nine. Um, <laughs> like me. Yeah. So there was also another, not necessarily companion, but I suppose if we're allowed to use a companion do episode that uh, Jessica, you recognized during the credits. Well, yeah, I recognized the name. Who um, appears in lots of Doctor Well, I say lots. Uh, yeah, yeah. But that was uh, Gene Rock, who is the uh, Commandant's assistant. Played by Wanda Ventham. Who is, among other things, mm. Benedict Cumberbatch's mummy. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes, I forgot that. Yes. <laughs> because uh, we, I, because <laughs> and the only reason we know that she's been multiple Doctor Who is because we were watching oh, whatever, because she's in three different things, uh, adventures. And she plays his actual mother in Sherlock as well, doesn't she? I oh, yeah. Mean, yes. His actual yeah. parents. Yes, his, both are, of his parents. His parents yeah. in, in the story, yeah. Because yeah. we were watching some other Doctor Who adventure. I, like I said, she's, I think it was, she's been in a fourth Doctor one. In a, oh, I know. She was in mm. Time on the Ronnie, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And, and yeah. that's where I think you recognize With the little green stuff stuck on yeah. our face. Yeah. So. Yep, there you go. That, that, for some reason, I have that random bit of knowledge in my head. Yeah, I know. I forgot. I completely forgot that. Yeah. I knew, I, I knew the story she'd been in in Doctor Who, but yeah, I'd forgotten the connection with Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it was funny that you mentioned the crowded TARDIS because, you know, it's interesting how, you know, time forgets and all that. You know, people talk about the crowded mm. TARDIS now. And mm. and obviously you're, you're the classic expert, not me. But to think about, basically, it was a crowded TARDIS from almost the beginning of Doctor Who. Um, well, from the, from yeah. Basically from the beginning until now. Because as you say, this is, uh, this is it for three companions until, you know, we get the Adric... Uh, Tessa Negan. Yeah, Peter Davison era, yeah. So yeah, which I think also suffers I I think I think the the Peter Davison era is is more akin from the to the modern era in the sense of it being slightly overcrowded. I don't think it it works in the same way. It's not that much of a detriment in in the the early years primarily because the stories were generally so much longer and so you you could uh, have sort of different plot lines going on, but but even you'll see certainly in uh, in Troughton's era in those one those stories partly because as I said Fraser Hines was kind of a last minute addition and hadn't been in the scripts as they were being written or drafted, but they do tend to sideline one or the other companions um, to so- just get them out of the way, much like I think Paul Yaz has been. Oh. A lot yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, um, I really enjoyed them fleshing out her character a little bit more this season I, I really wish they'd do more of that mm. um, looks like they'll get a chance to she's got a lot of potential <laughs> you know um yeah so i think uh i think uh, back yeah i think it worked okay in the in the first series with with uh, the doctor and ian and barbara and susan and then vicky because the doctor was a different type of character within the story as such i mean obviously william hartnell is a is a heroic character or at least becomes it as he goes on and even with that crew starts to become more of the the leading protagonist but but still you you kind of got ian as the hero and and susan or vicky as a sort of identification character um most of the time and so the dynamic works more so but when you've got two sort of heroic characters they're kind of juggling for screen time in a way um, so it doesn't it doesn't work as well. Of course, in the faceless ones, that's kind of solved by reducing the companion counter to one, and then slowly introducing Sam uh, for the rest of the story. So yeah, it's um, yeah. I don't think it. I don't think it works. I yeah. It's a it's a difficult. One. I think generally, even Russell T. Davis said that you know the Doctor with one main companion seems to be the main formula. Um, and I think in in shorter sort of forty five minute style episodic stories, that does seem to work best in the sense of giving them an opportunity to actually not just be ciphers or sort of two dimensional characters in way in, in a way. And when you do have that, you need to make sure that that the, that the characters are suitably different in the sense of the function they serve. So thinking of say like Matt Smith, Rory. Mm-hmm. And, and Amy, you know, Rory and the Doctor, whilst both being heroes in their own way, are very different characters and serve different functions in the story, um, or most most of them anyway. So that 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 sort of works. I like that that grouping. Um, I do kind of like the Doctor with two companions. Yes. So I think it gives a little bit of a a bouncing off. Like for example, in in uh, in the two Doctors with Colin Baker, when they they find Jamie. Um, before they find the second doctor and you've got jamie and perry and the sixth doctor and it makes for a much more interesting um dynamic between the three of them than just him and perry arguing all the time like they normally do in other stories so 
Yeah, it, I, I do like them to sort of have different mix and match and, and kind of things. But I, I think that the Troughton era was the, the it was starting to become a little bit more pacey, um, a little bit more sort of action-y. Um, and uh, yeah, I think he with two companions tends to work better than than those early ones with the three companions. Now, to the actual story, what do you think of the actual six-part serial storyline? Yeah, I mean, traditionally, I think those are too long. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, Richard, it's an interesting point about the airport being its own character and therefore taking part of that for original viewers. I think that's an, an interesting mm. idea that it hadn't occurred to me. But, yeah, I mean, I always like the idea of bad guys being sympathetic in some way. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> though, I don't, I mean, not to skip to the end, uh, Doctor Who, well, I don't know if this is a broad brush, so go ahead and tell me I'm wrong, but Doctor Who at times can sort of do to me a rushed magic ending, and this mm. one, not that it's... Deus ma- Ex Machina. Yeah, and it's not magic <laughs> ending, because I do like, and it's only, of course, I, I feel like they could have stretched this out, but maybe you don't need to stretch it out, but there's sort of a, uh, and I'm... I feel like maybe this is even more, more British um, than, than Universal, but I'm sure it is Universal. You sort of get a class warfare thing there at the end of like, oh, wait a minute, hold on. You have the mm. body extras and we don't have the whole, what's going on here? And sort of yeah. the whole, you know, uh, elite and whatever, whatever. But at the end, we're yeah. kind of like, and I forget the people's names, basically our main bad guy for most of the serial, he sort of becomes like the yeah. good guy. I'm like, hey, I think he killed several people, didn't he? And we're just going to let him go? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I've always thought that. Yeah, it's very conveniently wrapped up i think um the class bit that you allude to there i think might be a a legacy of the the original the original story before it was set in an airport was going to be set in a department store and the aliens were in this department store and there were two classes of them uh and they some of them had numbers and some of them had letters and the letters were like the drones Mm. and they were less realistically human um, so they, as an echo of what, as a sort of foreshadowing of what would later come, um, I don't know if it was just a question of great minds think alike or maybe a little bit of plagiary, but the, the drones would have taken, disguised themselves as shop window dummies. Ah. Uh, and the, the leaders, the numbered aliens, were going to like basically be running the department store. They were like the, the, the ones in charge. So there was perhaps elements of that as what then crept into that finale, perhaps with the, the argument between the director and, and the others. I think um, one of the sticking points for me is the, is the very, the, the kind of the explanation of what the chameleons, as the Doctor calls them, because they're not really named the aliens in the story, are uh, they some sort of explosion happened and that led to them losing their identity which is quite a ridiculous idea it doesn't it's not particularly scientific <laughs> they, and they don't really go into any kind of detail i mean maybe it was some sort of radiation which is sort of irradiated them and they're sort of decaying um but yeah it doesn't really explain it and it, it reminds me a little bit of there's another story called the ark with william hartnell where they encountered these aliens who are invisible I think they're called the, the the Refusions or something. And again, there's been a, gal- a cosmic explosion which blew their bodies away. And now they're just sort of like poltergeists. Um, so it's all a little bit kind of like... Ugh. It's kind of a MacGuffin, really, mm. isn't it? And I suppose it, this story obviously owes a lot to... And it wouldn't have been a new thing then either. This, this sort of Cold War infiltration 
fear no. film, you know, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and things mm. like that. And I think also maybe because it's called The Faceless Ones, this idea they've lost their identity, there might be some conscious or otherwise suggestion of kind of a uh, at least what was in the West perceived as sort of communist ideology of being everyone being the same and, and losing their individuality in some way. So, yeah, and I agree with you that there's not really a comeuppance because that the guy who eventually does the deal with the doctor has murdered lots of people and doesn't seem to really pay the price for any of that. So I, I do think they they should have introduced the explanation for what they were doing earlier rather than holding that right off till mm. episode five. Because you do get a lot of random, they're getting caught, they're getting you know, imprisoned, they're getting tied up, they're getting hypnotised and they're escaping over and over again until it kind of spins its wheels a lot in the middle, which is quite a common thing with that era of Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. Um, I think probably the most ridiculous thing and and very James Bond-esque is where the guy, he comes out, I think it's Sam, uh, Jamie and the Doctor in the Chameleon Tours hangar and uh, the the chameleon alien guy is going to shoot oh, them, yes. and they have a tussle, and he knocks them out. And rather than just shooting them, <laughs> he ties them up, puts them on the floor, turns on a random laser he has, which very slowly <laughs> creeps up the floor. <laughs> she just happens to have a mirror in her handbag, uh, which is very convenient for the Doctor to then... You just think it's so... It's ridiculous, but at the same time, it's so on point as a James Bond. Yes, yeah. Uh, you know, how are they going to escape from this kind of very gold finger, isn't it? So uh, I don't know if how it would, I'm sure is this, I was interested in how that would look in real life or, you know, um, how it looked on, on the film, mm. but like on the animation, like, I think the other two are fine. It's just going to kill her. Like, that lady's just going one <laughs> Yes, yes. She's expendable. As far as, like, yeah, that shot, I'm not sure about the, the visual effect, but um, the, the shot of those three laying down with the laser sort of creeping up towards them, I believe is pretty accurate to how it was portrayed <laughs> in the show. So, yeah, it doesn't really make much sense either, does it? Yeah, and then they escape. And, yeah, you, you do get a lot of that in those longer Doctor Who stories, I think, that was partly because sometimes stories were commissioned uh, to fill a certain number of episodes and it wasn't always apparent until the writing of them that the story they'd come up with wouldn't necessarily fill that time block and so you do get this kind of the traditional sort of episode three in a in a four-part story which is just them running up and down corridors (laughs) um you know as that's kind of almost a cliche really of of doctor who so yeah you do get a bit of that but i i do like i think it's quite good as a troughton story it's sort of based under cg because they're in the airport they've got the control room you've got a kind of disgruntled disbelieving authority figure so it does fit that tradition, but to me it, it kind of feels a little bit more, I don't think epic's the right word, but a little bit broader than a lot of other Troughton stories because a lot of Troughton stories do settle down into a very familiar format like that uh, with a menace sort of attacking them. But um, I, I kind of like it. I've always kind of... I don't know why, really, to be honest. I, it, I, I think it's a good story. Mm-hmm. It doesn't live up to its full potential, mm-hmm. as you say. It doesn't really develop that. I think there should have been... Also, you don't get a sense that the aliens are truly desperate. They're kind of... I think that's why that ending is so... So, as you say, sort of deus ex machina, because they they're supposed to be really desperate to survive but for most of the story they are very typical sort of moustache twirling <laughs> they certainly take their time about it yeah they're desperate yeah, but yeah. and also they're incredible i thought about the dunning kruger effect but they they uh 
they think they say the director goes oh, our plan is is more complicated than the puny humans could possibly conceive of and when you learn it you go it really is yeah. <laughs> it's actually quite stupid yeah, yeah. i mean you know magical we're gonna abduct fifty thousand kids it's <laughs> yeah and just assume their identities yeah it's um uh, but i do I, it's the first story that Mal- malcolm hulk contributed i believe to, to doctor who and he would then later go on to to be quite uh important in the in the third doctor's era and sort of mentor really for terence dix as a writer i think terence dix as he was getting into writing for for television uh, lived with him and sort of learned a lot from him and so he then commissioned him to write stories for doctor who in in uh in pertwee's era quite a lot so he was the guy who went on and wrote uh created the silurians and uh sea devils and and um and things like that so in it's a good example of where doctor who was sort of heading for because you can see those elements of pertwee it's much more of like a thriller as you say like a james bond thriller than perhaps what had gone before and then uh jessica what did you sort of think of the second doctor in action we haven't necessarily watched a lot of troughton i mean other than multi-doctor stories i mean when we've seen the animations what do you sort of think of the second doctor i like troughton that that's what i think mm-hmm. <laughs> well i was trying to remember what were we watching i think we were watching maybe the the dvd extras of the third doctor where and i don't think it was one of the more modern uh, doctor who producers or writers was uh comparing pertwee and trout and, and saying you know mm-hmm. pertwee's always cool so you can always there's never maybe that sense of danger because you're like well he knows he knows what he's doing whereas with trout's a little more yeah frenetic so you're like i don't know what's gonna happen because yeah. he seems you know and you sort of get him well yeah he's a bit He's a bit like Peter Davison in that regard, isn't he? That he, he, his doctor, you get a sense of him desperately trying to stop the chaos from happening and sort of get scraping through the skin of his teeth kind of thing. Um, whereas you're right, like John Pertwee and Tom Baker as well, very much kind of command everything and take it in their stride much more. Mm. You never know he's going to pull out of his pockets with the second Doctor too. So. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I thought that the teenage, well, young persons, whatever, aspect, you know, from maybe viewers... Because, again, I don't know who was watching this show, um, Richard, at the time. I mean, everyone, maybe, or anyway. But, I mean, I just think of, like, a very, you know, original series Star Trek tend to be for teenagers, whether purposefully or not. Mm. And having this sort of, like, we have the young Jamie and Samantha, and then the yeah. sort of young story. They don't really pre- impress it that much in the story, but that that's who the, the people who are in danger are. So it sort of identifies the audience, but then it just sort of magically shrinks but also a period piece Mm. of you know all of these young kids off to see the world and carefree and and almost hippie-esque you know well there was a big yeah there was a big rise at that time of of package holidays and sort of 18 to 30 trips Mm. to the continent and and things like that so that was sort of very much in the in the zeitgeist kind of i was a little worried because again without knowing the story and then maybe with I mean, I hate to call it Modern Who, but, you know, with the current series, I feel like, and I mean, that's going sound like a criticism, but it does not necessarily meant to be, but, like, I feel like in the modern era, like, if Chris Chibnall made this a 13 Doctor stories, all these teenagers are dead. Like, they, they all died. Yeah, you know? <laughs> no coming back from this. <laughs> so Too I was bad. worried throughout the show, like, I mean, this has been like a couple of plane trips, you know, and then I just, like, at the end, they're like, oh, yeah, they're all shrunk, shrinky-dinked, we'll fix it, or something. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very sort of convenient little, yeah explanation and also what what were the presumably the the aliens they they need to keep the copies Mm. for them to for them to carry on assuming the identity uh very much like the zygons Mm -hmm. in 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 tom baker's era at least um 
but uh, yeah, I don't quite understand what their intention were. They going to keep them as a little sort of action figure sized figure? I mean, maybe I've missed things in, in watching it, but uh, they they take them up on a plane, they shrink them, they put them in the space station, but then they don't do that to all of them. Some of them are down in the car park, which mm-hmm. hanging thinking, out in cars. Thinking, this plan's not really foolproof. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> They're going to run out of cars eventually, right? I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also, if they're planning to abduct 50,000 young people, okay, they've got the, the the way of, you know, they get them all to write, not suspicious of them, <laughs> write a postcard before they leave and put Spanish stamps on them to send them. Surely someone's going to notice that after that initial postcard, um, <laughs> they're you know, never they heard have from never it. returned. Yeah. <laughs> Look, the, the, the continent's dangerous. That's why we just need to stay in Britain. I'm telling you people, uh, you know. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's. I do like. I mean, I watching it. I was completely in it, but now that it's done, I can now make fun mm. of it. Of like, do you know where we kept our bodies? I think they're bluffing. Like, oh, we've got to keep looking. They don't know where it is. Do you say where it is, or we won't do anything? And it's like, um, they're all in the car park. There's like a bunch of bodies. You need to roll down, roll down the windows. Come on now. <laughs> Basic dog care 101, <laughs> leave the window crack. Although, uh, to be fair, I, I don't know how, how big the Gatwick Airport car parks were back then, but nowadays it would be, it is a bit like finding an easy <laughs> because there's thousands and thousands. So I don't know, maybe it was, uh, I don't know, maybe the plan was over a much shorter term mm-hmm. than, uh, than it appears. I always assume that they've been doing this for a while in the story and we're planning on doing it for a while longer but um yeah maybe they're doing it quite quickly and trying to get it done and out of the way well any final thoughts jessica on the faceless ones i like it i like i like i think i just like the passion people feel for this series that they're like let's take these episodes and bring them back to life and other people are like yes that's a fantastic idea we love that it just yeah, and and it's something we'll talk about in the TARDIS library as well, this feeling that people will come back for it every I, time. I think the only thing disappointing, not in the story, not in the recreation, but I, you know, one thing when I when I purchase the, the Blu-rays or whatever, I always look forward to the extras. And this one, I did like the extra they have, because about the animators and the animation, both the process and the people, because they're very interesting people in their own right. Um, and so I didn't, I like that part, but usually there's a little bit of a back the story, like it would have been cool to just like, you know, maybe a, a focus on um, Ben and Polly or something, or just something about mm. but it's nothing. Um, yeah. So, but anyway, one two final thoughts, Richard? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I agree. I, I think that that's part of it. That is sort of notable by its absence. I think that might be virtue of the, you know, how much budget is available. Mm. It. They spent it all on the actual reconstruction rather than the extras. Um, I, I'd like to see a little bit more about, about Michael Craze because he sadly uh, died uh, in the late 90s, sort of before I uh had really you know before the rise of all dvd extras and and things so although he was quite a feature on the convention circuit i haven't actually seen that much sort of many interviews with him or read much about him and i'd like to know more about him i think it would be nice to have a little maybe i'll have to do it (laughs) (laughs) a little a little uh you know biography of of him and and who he was because um i know he he acted for about 10 years or so after this he popped up in all kinds of things and then he sort of retired and owned a pub for the next 30 oh, years amazing. so um, everyone's dream and i yeah i've always thought he's quite an interesting character and i think because 
Uh, he obviously most of his stories don't exist. Uh, he and Polly, um, he's a bit of an enigma. He, even to me, I've you know I've seen them all. I've read books with the character in. He still seems a bit enigmatic to me. Polly, not so much because Annika Wills has appeared in many documentaries and things since. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that that's a little bit of a, a poignant thing, which might be nice for them at some point to to do for for him, mm. um, and just so that we could learn a little bit more about him. Because you know, I, as time goes by and and other people who were involved in these productions are passing on, you know, I think there's a maybe a danger of some stories not being told. You know. Mm. Well, we wish farewell to Ben and Polly. And speaking of farewells, we're going to go into the TARDIS library. When you close your eyes... I go to the library. Go to the library now. Now, in the TARDIS library here, this is like our second time we've had someone here. So, Richard, thanks for... for Yeah, yeah. Um, So, this era of quarantine, you know, obviously a lot of bad things, you know, deaths and sicknesses, of course. So, a silver lining, if there is one, is that at least in the Doctor Hugh universe, we've seen a lot of creative endeavors from um, regular fans, but of course the people who've made Doctor Who with these uh, watch-alongs, tweet-alongs, and has inspired a lot of people, including, you know, Russell T. Davies and uh, Stephen Moffat and others to sort of maybe add a little bit more to the Doctor Who universe. And one of those things, a rather poignant thing, happened the other day on the uh, ninth anniversary of the passing of uh, Liz Sladen, who played Sarah Jane Smith, um, was a original um, webcast, I guess is the best thing to call it, called Farewell mm. Sarah Jane, written by Russell T. Davies. And narrated by Jacob Dudnam of, well, I would say Big Finish fame, but his own fame, I suppose. And uh, they've done a couple of these recreations. We've talked about that, Jessica, but this one mm. had some surprising additions oh, to it. Oh. So, Jessica, what was it? Yes. Uh, yeah. Any t- anytime Jacob would look at the screen, you knew that somebody famous was coming on, <laughs> which was fantastic. Yeah, it was like a, almost like a wing. Yes. <laughs> yes. So all, all of the different, I mean, obviously not all of them, but uh, different characters from Doctor Who, who were also at the funeral, who were in their own homes, quarantining with the rest of us and and doing these scenes, which I just think is brilliant. I love it. What was your favorite or most poignant appearance? I was surprised because we probably watched... Luke. Sorry. Okay. Well, I was, you know, we've watched most of Sarah Jane. It was on Amazon Prime here in the U.S. Mm. Um, like just on Amazon Prime, and we'd gotten all the way to the wedding of Sarah Jane. And suddenly, for whatever reason, Prime's like, all right, you got to rent it now. And I'm like, well, why am I going to pay for Prime and rent? I think that's stupid. So we mm-hmm. haven't watched the rest of the series of Sarah Jane. So I think maybe it's the third series off the top of my head. I might be wrong. So we have not seen all the rest of it. So we might be missing some things. But I, the one I thought was surprised, Jessica, that you reacted to was actually um, uh, Ronnie's mother when she showed up. Yeah. Because that was sort of the first, I guess, Sarah Jane actor, really. Yes, and it was... A little bit um, random's not the right word, but a surprise. Mm-hmm. You know, she's not the first person you think about. But the and and in the show, she was always this sort of 
bumbling around all over the place here and there and da 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 and so i think for uh for her to be giving tribute was just really lovely because she's the and I, there's a better word for this but i'll say it this way the clueless character that in other words mm. knows the relationships but doesn't know the alien fighting um and so for her to speak about the relationship instead of the alien fighting mm. kind of creates that moment yeah but what did you think of luke who had the Sarah in his photo in the background. Oh, yes. That was so perfect. Had a picture of, of the two of them in the background and and talking about... And I don't... You know, as you say, we haven't seen the end of the series, but I expect it probably didn't come up in the actual series. You know, she knew it as soon as she saw whatever the guy's name was, and now mm-hmm. we've been married, and I was... Just this lovely little <laughs> detail that's... Yeah. I just, I, I cried through, I mean, sobbed through the whole thing. And I imagine it's partly due to the time that we're living in right now, but it was just, I loved it. Now, Richard, Sarah Jane Adventures has done this before, most notably, I think, in um, The Death of the Doctor. Is that what that was called with Matt Smith's appearance? I mm. can't, I mean, maybe yeah. It. But anyway, yeah. th- that, into that show, or it's always too episodes but it's a serial or show or episode but anyway um and that's so we get a sort of postscript from sarah jane about where some of the companions have ended up and so in mm. this episode if we want to call it that of sarah jane we get even more epilogues to the classic companions what do you think of all their yeah. fates or appearances yeah i think it's always it's always good to hear you know it give that sense of the the story goes on for these characters and it's also nice as well when they do that to to have a little bit like to go back to what we were saying earlier about this idea sometimes if a, if a companion is left somewhat unceremoniously to then you know have a nice little indication that their story continued on and they they you know they did things so that they're sent that you get in somewhere kind of a uh, a sense of redressing the balance a little mm. bit um it's always good to see Sophie Aldred in character oh as, I know. As, of course as well and I know that there I I'm I, I must admit I didn't I didn't avidly watch the Sarah Jane Adventures. I've seen a few episodes. I tend to watch Doctor Who, really, rather than than the spin-offs. And um, I, I will mention a little bit about that in my next uh, video that I'm going to do, because obviously oh, yes. that's the big era of the mm. spin-offs, the David Tennant era. Um, but I, you know, I have seen a few. I'm aware of the characters, and um, uh, you know, for me, uh, I think it was it was more the uh, sort of. Uh, Partly, it kind of got to the heart of uh, of what Doctor Who can be, and I think all of these projects that are sort of coming along, the stories, the little short stories that have been written and and released, kind of, I think for me is is a great thing. Like seeing the little, um, you know, little vlog videos of Jodie Whittaker in a cupboard or wherever mm. she is hiding and reassuring. It kind of really cuts to the heart of what um, I think Doctor Who can really be, which is a, is a story about hope and a, a story about you know life going on, life continuing, and even and not not making a sort of saccharine or twee way and sort of happy ever after, but acknowledging that there are bad things in the universe and there are losses and and but the memory of them and the stories that continue are are the things that can make the difference and, and make people immortal in a way. And so I think. Uh, you know, telling those stories and having that. I've always felt that I think some people might think it a bit ridiculous to have a fictional character as a, as a role model, but, you know, even as an adult. But I, I disagree with that. I think, uh, you know, a fictional character we can project onto and, and craft a, 
uh, an idealized but but still perhaps achievable uh, way of how we can act and and we can take life lessons mm. from that and so that's what I think this the, the Sarah Jane tribute kind of really captured um, with with the companions and how the the how Sarah Jane had a positive effect on their life and how they've gone forward and carried on those sort of ideas um, into things you know and and uh, and that's what I really liked. I also read um, actually earlier today. Um, I don't know when it came out. I think it was relatively recently. But Stephen Moffat had written a little short story called the 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 uh, Umpty Um. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but I found that very 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 moving in a way i i it really captured uh i think what doctor who is all about really i think a lot of people get distracted somewhat and arguing about minutiae uh <laughs> of things i know that's rich for me to say uh, but, <laughs> i was um, like we, we do a podcast about uh, minutiae. <laughs> the, the, yeah, but the but the fundamental the fundamental purpose of doctor who uh or or, or or what it has become and the value of it, I think, is something that's been captured really, really well in these sort of quarantine mm. videos. I mean, I don't know of any other show, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know of any other show that has sort of, as you say, kind of have all these people kind of coming together and, and you know, pushing out random things with no monetary financial uh expectation in mind just to offer people reassurance and hope and uh and that's what i really really appreciate about about all the things that have been coming out uh you know they're not just little easter eggs to tease a a, a product mm-hmm. they are uh, a way of sharing a story a kind of a con- consoling story that makes us i think let feel less alone you know with without it being on the nose you know without you know it, it it's more about just reminding us of our humanity and what we mean to each other, I think. Yes. And the thing that was very interesting about this story, I mean, because, of course, it's based on you know, a real person you know, passing away, but uh, the confluence mm-hmm. of classic and new, um, because, you know, obviously Sarah Jane is a classic char- who, character. Um, mm-hmm. So you, when you have those, you know, Joe Jones and you have Ace, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that callbacks, and even the, the, the narrative comeback, or callbacks, excuse me, um, which I, mm. I, maybe I'm just a bit tense, but when they said, oh yeah, there was a couple from Australia, Nissa and Tegan, I'm like, yeah, it's just, I didn't think romantic couple, but I guess I'm, I'm just clueless that way. <laughs> um, also, I would love to see uh, Nissa in Australia. I just I feel like she, that's a, <laughs> that was probably a culture shock for her, <laughs> who to me is the Yaz of the Fifth Doctor era, but that's just me. Yeah. Uh, I just really just wanted to see her in Peter Davison yeah. alone. But anyway. Well, that, I mean, she's that's one of the benefits of Big Finish that you a lot most I would say of, of Peter Davison's audios have really been him and Nissa mm-hmm. because they were going to get rid of Nissa when she was on the show earlier than they did, and Peter Davison said, "No, I think she's the best companion for my incarnation of the Doctor," and I think he was, I think he was right. I think they work really, really well together. She is a bit Jessica doesn't like her. She's not wet. <laughs> she's not. I wouldn't say she's wet, but she she is a bit of a goody two shoes. Mm and and so that kind of doesn't lend much there's not really any angst there at all but um they did do an interesting thing big finish where she leaves the tardis and then they uh her and tegan and uh, the doctor and tegan and turlow encounter her again many years later and she travels with them again as an older mm-hmm. woman and that that's a really little interesting sort hmm. of storyline 
but sorry, I'm, I'm yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> but, and, uh, and of course, then they were. I think because they said, um, "Oh Lordy, I'm going to start dropping names here." Um, the Ian and Barbara came. I was like, aren't they a little old? But I'm like, well, William Russell's still alive, so yes, it's possible, yeah. obviously. Um, yeah, 95, I think he is yeah. now. I love William Russell. Yes. Mm. I'd really like to meet him, but I don't think I'm ever going to get the chance. I think he's a bit too elderly now to do... I don't think he really does the convention. No, he does. We saw yes, him. Yes, he was, he was he? at Gallifrey oh. 1 last year. Really? Yeah. Ago. Well, well last, so last February, yes. yeah. Um, but right. it he's, was... Yeah, he's he was he's He didn't on. need to... Yeah, because he was there with Susan. Uh, yeah. And they were on this big screen or big stage, and she was just sort of mm. leading him on, basically. leading, yeah, hand holding, mm. and yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, he's he's obviously a still. I I mean, you know, I hope to to have his uh, his faculties and his uh, his health yeah. at, at that age, mm. um, because I know that he's, he must be quite a virile uh, man, because um, so to speak, yeah, because his, son's uh, doing very well. his his yeah, his son um, is only. Um, well, he's younger than than myself. He was in the surely. Harry Potter films, wasn't he? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, yeah. So. To have a son at uh, what he would have been either in his late sixties, early seventies. Yeah, seriously. It, you know, it, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to meet him. But I do, I do like, I love Ian and Barbara. They're, I, I know some people that you know they're underdeveloped or, or whatever. But I just have this big soft spot for those mm. two characters. And, Is it because they're um, teachers? <laughs> no, ironic. No, funnily enough, teachers can go in the TARDIS. Um, see? <laughs> I don't know what it is about them. I just, I really, 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 I've always liked this characters. I love. Uh, that's why I, I, I still, when I watch Mordred Undead uh, with Peter Davison, and it's the Brigadier. Uh, he encounters the Brigadier, and the Brigadier's ended up as a teacher. And you're like, why has that happened? Because of course, originally it was going to be Ian. Oh, and it and it, it's still such oh. a. They kept the characterization mm. as such that it oh. was a former companion, and now he's a teacher. That's the Turlo but, uh, introduction, isn't it? It was going to be a, an Ian, and a, a, um, and it's still ever since I learned that fact, I always get this pang of oh, because I'd have loved to have seen him. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, um, I do like the fact they did a little Easter egg uh, in Day of the Doctor, where uh, on oh, yes. the sign to Cole Hill School, I believe he's the chair of governors for the school. They've got listed that I think uh, they've got Ant- Tony Coburn, who was the writer of the original Doctor Who story. Um, I think he's the head teacher, and then underneath he's got chair of governors is. Uh, Ian uh, Chesterton. So I do the little nods yeah. in the series to, to pass companions like that is nice. And Ace was actually going to be, I believe, uh, Russell T. Davis was planning on having Ace in a story in the Sarah Jane Adventures, but before they got the opportunity to write that, uh, Elizabeth Sladen obviously passed mm. away. So it was nice to see her in, yes. this, in this little video. I must, I haven't read no. her her book. I'm looking yet, at it right uh, now with the Thirteenth Doctor. <laughs> but I haven't read it yet either. <laughs> I've got a. Yeah, I've got to get a copy of it. At Ch- Childhood's End, which, of course, is A-C-E. Is Ace, yeah. <laughs> um, and then just back to the story for just a second. I did like, because you would think in a memorial story that it, Luke would be the focus as the, as the son, but I like how Ronnie was the emotional focus, if you will, because it, it often has leaned on the young girl, whether it was Maria in the first series or Ronnie and the other ones about them being sort of, I mean, obviously Sarah Jane's the main character, but it's often the young woman who's the. Well, and Ronnie wanted to be a journalist, right? Just like, like Sarah, Sarah Jane. Jane, yeah. And so this this person she looked up to. Now, of course, 
a little bit of I don't know Easter egg gossip. I know, it's right? Gossip, darling. I know that, of course. Well, I say, of course, um, and I'm, I apologize for blanking on her real name, but Ronnie is, you know, she's in quarantine like all of us, and I guess she's in quarantine with her boyfriend, who is Sasha Dewan, uh, who, of course, oh. was is the master. And so, when you look at mm. the special thanks at the end of Farewell, Sarah Jane, you'll see the special thanks to Sasha Dewan, who was camera operator <laughs> during the Ronnie oh. scenes. <laughs> Uh, holding up the phone, I guess, or whatever it was. But so I just like to think that Ronnie is, you know, dating the master. Um, of course, Ronnie. I'm sorry, I forget her real name. That was also in the Thirteenth Doctor, playing the not Spider Queen, mm, in, uh, and was also oh, in yes, the uh, Bodyguard, oh, or, or just is it just Bodyguard? Anyway, that yeah, fantastic British. Yeah, I think her name's Angie. I might might be wrong. It was Angie Chowdhury, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, I forgot that I forgot she was yeah she was in the um, yeah the the Tesla mm-hmm. uh, episode, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, playing the not Spider Queen. Mm-hmm. I just always think like, are surely they was related <laughs> to the Spider Queen in, in the uh, yeah uh, yeah ride. yeah she was sort of a a scorpion version of the arachnid yeah. uh, Rachnos, yes. wasn't she? Yeah yeah, everyone thought it was the Rachnos <laughs> at first, didn't they? Yeah, but anyway. yeah. But yes, no, it's, it's definitely a lovely, we'll include the link for those who haven't seen it in the show notes. Um, Bring but, your tissues. Yeah, and I mean, just and just the power of the production, which I think this is produced by, I'm going to get her name wrong, Emily Cook, I believe, of uh, Doctor Who Monthly, who's mm-hmm. been doing all the tweet-alongs and producing all this stuff. It's just, yeah. I mean, what you can do with, and what Doctor Who knows, you know, through Big Finish and everything else, you know, what you can do with Jacob doing the narration, someone doing the music, mm-hmm. and then doing these sort of clips, and... And you know a little bit of green screen there and here and there, and, and it's, mm. it's just amazing what you can do for a short story. Mm. Yeah, and I think uh, yeah, I think also I don't know if you've seen, but on uh, the the other evening um, uh, on BBC Television, they sort of the Children in Need and, and Red Nose Day sort of teamed up and did a, a sort of joint fundraising thing for their respective charities, but also to support this whole situation that's going on uh, and they did a number of uh, it's a little, little programs and things and there was a Doctor Who thing that actually had uh, all the Doctors uh, oh, yes. live, uh, aside aside from Christopher Eccleston, rather notable by Douglas um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, now they had uh, even um, uh, the, the Ruth Doctor mm-hmm. yep. um, uh, and, and everything, yeah um, and I thought that was, you know, it was very very sweet because as again you know i i think you know what i said about role models i think when you're young uh, other than your parents your, your main role models are fictional characters and so to see the doctor you know saying you know i'm a doctor but the real heroes are are the real doctors and the nurses and everyone who who's supporting people i think it's a great example to set for, for people to be you know appreciative or i think one of the things that this whole situation hopefully in this country at least will will uh, help embed a little bit more is a, is a stronger appreciation for how lucky we are to have the not just the science but the healthcare systems yes. um that we that we have um and uh, yeah it's it's quite nice for that to be acknowledged uh metacognitively you know in, in a story mm. i think he's rubbing it in uh, I know, I know. yes <laughs> <laughs> definitely definitely um, rubbing it in yeah yeah we got it you have the nhs <laughs> we do not <laughs> um. <laughs> but it, no but i think i think in recent years it, it has been a bit of a, a difficulty i think of some people taking it for granted yes. in this country and not realizing how 
lucky they are to have it at the free free at the point of, of issue and all that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, it's nice to have um, our fictions and our uh, our. Uh, I suppose you could. I mean, the Doctor belongs to to everyone, but um, he is a he she is in a way a, an English or British uh, folk hero, mm-hmm. so to speak. You know, so to have a character like that lording these real world things, I think is is important. Um, so yeah, I like that. Also, incidentally, you talk about Eliza Sladen. I don't know if you're aware, but uh, another little, uh, I suppose, tribute to her in a way is that uh, Big Finish have recently. Um, uh, so they they somehow got hold of the original um, plan for the Cyberman story that uh, that Tom Baker had. Though it, what ended up on screen in his first series wasn't quite the the original so they got the original version and they've recorded it new but uh, to fill Sarah Jane's role they actually got her daughter uh, Sadie Miller yes. I believe is her surname or at least it used to be <laughs> uh, to play her her mum so I think that would be quite nice to listen I to I don't understand um, was Jacob not available to do the Sarah Jane voices <laughs> it was it was he probably could it was funny because uh, uh, Sadie I think posted a, a video you know with the feral Sarah Jane you know just sort of a you know acknowledging all the good work but yeah. uh, I, I loved how realistic it was because she has two small children and uh, during her video they're being two small children and yeah. so you know yeah. it's not, not no polish no take two it's like yeah this is what life yeah. is yeah. when you have two small children trying to record a message <laughs> so I thought that was very nice. Uh, yes, but before we say farewell to you, Richard, what what do you have going on in the internet verse that you'd like to share with our listeners? I am. Um, I mentioned uh, last time you gra- uh, graciously had me on that I had been working on a on a three D version of the TARDIS, uh, and it's been many, many, many months. But that is. Uh, I don't, I don't think it'll be nearing fruition anytime soon in the sense of what it done, but I've actually built the whole thing. So uh, the idea is that I will do a, a guide to the original TARDIS at least. It took me about two months to actually build the whole thing. Um, the only problem is that obviously it'll be an animation, a video, and it will guide you around the TARDIS and everything. I've, I've been doing a test animation. It's 16 seconds long. It walks in through the doors. It goes around the console and shows you all the thing. And it has now been rendering for four and a half days and will take another eight days. Oh, no. So I, I wouldn't necessarily expect it anytime soon, but that is on the that is on the horizon. I thought also before I I've got a bit more research to do about the David Tennant era before I can really crack on with with that video. But uh, in the meantime, what I'm hoping to do is to finally get around to doing some of these uh, appendix videos I've been promising for a while because uh, I always obviously I've mentioned key things throughout the different eras of the videos that I've been doing things about the the actors and uh, and all that and particular stories and sometimes monsters but what I wanted was sort of a companion series of shorter videos so I would like to do a series about the companions and do uh, about different monsters and things so I'm going to start work on uh, on uh, I think I'm going to do Susan obviously as my first one do a little thing about that and that'll tell you info about her and the actress who played her uh, or plays her present tense still, um, and uh, and then mm. after that, what I'm going to do is sort of maybe do a poll on Patreon for what different uh, companions people would like to see because I don't necessarily feel the need necessarily to do it in chronological order. Obviously, they'll be in a playlist in the order in which mm. they featured, but I don't have to make them necessarily in that order. <clears> so if wanted someone wanted to see, you know, next up they wanted to learn something about I don't know Liz Shaw or someone, then I could I could do that. 
Well, Richard, I can go ahead and tell you, Jessica's Jessica, what do you want to see? <laughs> Ace! <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely have. Yeah, I think I'll enjoy that one a lot. I, I've always loved Ace. Uh, yeah. And, obviously, and uh, my audiobook, uh, this has been a long time coming. I've got part two, which is very nearly done. So that's uh, a, 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 a Seventh Doctor story from that's out of print now which was a very uh, important book that i really enjoyed when i was younger so i've been i've been working on that this second part has been monumental actually because i kind of said rather than just having me read it the idea was to to have it almost like a big finish audio so i've been doing all little sound effects and, and soundscapes and all that and this one has got much mm. more it's got a kind of like an, a gigantic smoke entity monster thing. So it was interesting creating sound effects for that. <laughs> and an alternative yeah. history, the sound of alternative history, which was quite difficult. An alternative Second World War and uh, um, yeah, riots in London and all this kind of thing. So <laughs> it's been very fun. But it, yeah, it's a wow. long time coming. But hopefully I'll be getting that done over the next week or so. So that's my that's my plans. You do lots well, of exciting yeah, things. Exciting is one word for them, I suppose. <laughs> 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 well, we'll include links Thank to you. your Facebook and YouTube in the show notes as well, so people can contact you. And until next week, folks can watch, listen, and read about the Doctor's adventures throughout time, time and space. This is BBC Television.